The Hero's Journey podcast is filled with an abundance of spoilers. If you haven't read this week's book, I recommend you do so, as it will certainly help you follow along. Although, if you're only interested in hearing our take on this story, listen on. Hi, and welcome to A Hero's Journey, a literary podcast. I'm your host and judge, Jack, and I'm here with my rambunctious Romans. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. Each week, we look at a different book through Joseph Campbell's monomyth. This week, we're going to be looking at The Last King by Michael Curtis Ford. We're taking a departure from our normal fantasy and sci-fi books, and we're discussing a historical fiction novel. This book is a historical fiction that is based around the life of Mithridates VI, also known as Mithridates the Great, the... Uh, most feared villain and enemy of the Roman Empire, if you believe some scholars. The whole book is told from the point of view of one of his bastard sons, uh, but we're actually going to be analyzing the king's life itself, um, so not the point of view of the narrator, which is pretty interesting. It starts off from his childhood, where his his mother is possibly trying to have him murdered so she can stay in power, to his voluntary exile, return back to the throne, uh, decision to overthrow Roman control of his area of uh, the Aegean uh, part of Asia, uh, previously parts of the Persian Empire, uh, the three wars that he has with Rome in order to do so, uh, and then the culmination of that that resulted in the legacy that we still have of Mithridates today. So the main reason to be canon in Mithridates' eyes is to pull his family, his kingdom, and his people out from the shadow of Rome. He's hoping to lessen or completely rid his sphere of influence from what he believes to be the evil, barbarous shadow of Rome and their slaving and their, uh, in his view, backwards way of living and come back to the more culturally refined views of, of uh, Alexander the Great and, and the uh, great Hellenistic empires that preceded uh, the Roman Empire. Now, luckily for him, and perhaps whether this is the, the ch which came first, the chicken or the egg, he was born a prince of the kingdom of Pontus. Uh, his father was a, uh, a king, the king of Pontus, Mithridates V, who held great influence, but after his death, uh, the shadow of Rome started to fall over the empire. His mother became uh, the regent until her son was of age, but she slowly played more and more into wanting to keep the power of being regent to herself, even as her son grew older. And she also um, was starting to slowly give more and more power to Rome from Pontus, which meant, having a not very sizable army, um, taking loans out, doing a lot of things that left Pontus in Rome's debt. And part of this in her mindset to keep power was to eliminate her eldest son. So it, she kept trying to arrange accidents that he slowly picked up on. So Mithridates decides to leave the capital city with a group of other young noblemen to live amongst the wild for quite a bit of time, in which he continues his education on languages and the geopolitical climate, while also um, improving his physical physique through hunting and, and understanding of, of the 
understanding of the kingdom that he hopes to one day rule over. Now, this is what constitutes his refusal of the call. Uh, you know, when you're running away, when your mom is trying to kill you, uh, if he had tried to stay and stand up to his mom extremely early, I could see, you know, that would be him immediately accepting his call to throw off the shackles of Rome. But no, he has to go away. He has to ignore that desire to stand up to Rome and, and take his place as, as ruler of his kingdom while he, A, matures uh, and comes of age but also learns more about the situation that he's going to find himself in. Now we have perhaps my second, maybe third favorite character in the book, uh, Papias, who is his mentor here. So we're meeting the mentor. Papias is a pseudo shaman slash witch doctor priest character. It's, it's a pretty, um, ill-defined uh, job that he has, but what his most important role is for for young uh, Prince Mithridates is to create an elixir that eventually becomes famous historically, um, and that Mithridates will drink every day that slowly adapts his body to different poisons, whether it's arsenic, um, he isn't, uh, or uh, any of the other common poisons of the time. He slowly adds bits of them into this elixir so that when Mithridates were to encounter them outside of this elixir, they, they wouldn't have an effect on him. And by doing this, he is providing Mithridates with an extremely powerful gift because one of the most common ways that rulers die at this time period is, is through poisoning. Uh, he also provides um, what I would call dubious uh, advisory capabilities to the prince and the eventual king. Uh, in several different instances and is viewed as a, as a trusted mentor. I think it's even said at one point in the book, he's one of my most trusted advisors. So it, the book even comes out and says it for us. Uh, for crossing the threshold, we finally have the young prince returning home to the capital city uh, on a gold, I don't want to say plated gold. The prince comes back to the city on a gold dusted stallion, uh, wowing the crowd and his people into rejoicing at his return and claiming the throne for himself from his mother. Um, unfortunately, this leads us right into the belly of the whale in which he finally understands how dire the situation is in relation to his country's debt to Rome, uh, not only in a cultural sense and that they, they've fallen to the wayside in the glory of Rome, but in a literal sense of a debt where it seems like every Roman moneylender and every Roman citizen um, has a controlling interest over some part of his kingdom's lifestyle. And it's something that he tries to rectify extremely early in his time as ruler. How much of this is historical, Zach, um, of this first half of our or first third of our hero's journey? Uh, so the parts that I think are embellished for the tale is his time period in the wild. I think is overdone a little bit to add this sort of more playful aspect to the book. I think historically it's thought that he uh, sought refuge with another political entity. Uh, it's rather difficult to continue your, your ed formal education while you're living like Peter Pan in the wilderness and only showing up every now and then. Uh, so I think that's a bit of an embellishment on Ford's part. Um, the other part that, is viewed as historically accurate representation is his elixir. 
whether or not the actual benefits that came from it um, are as both history and the book tells us is uh, could probably be left to decided by people who have more medical information than I do. Um, the rest of it uh, is fairly uh, is, is fairly accurate historically. He um, he's the prince. He hates the way that Rome's treating his homeland. He was gone for quite a bit of time. Comes reclaims the throne and finds things in dire straits. I just want to throw in one correction there, and uh, feel free to reach out to us, uh, any Mithridates scholars that know better than we do. But I'm pretty sure uh, that his elixir was is first written about well after his death. So that one might also be more legend than history. But all for right. all purposes, historical enough. Yeah, so... Getting back to our journey, I think that the quest and call are a fairly classic. Mithridates does want to bring out himself and his people from Rome's shadow, clearly, and being born a prince is a fairly standard call to adventure. Now, for the refusal of the call, I think that this is like a pretty classic one, too, except for one thing. In, in a classic tale, when the prince is born and has to flee for whatever reason, usually is hidden, doesn't know that he's a prince when he flees, and the only thing that he gains in his time among the common people is, like, a humility. Mithridates doesn't get any of that in his exile. In fact, he goes and develops strength and connections with the horse people that he uses to further his goals of stepping out of the shadow of Rome. He, he's not refusing the call here. He's simply leaving because he's not old enough to deal with the problem at home, which is his mother trying to kill him before he becomes of age to take the throne. And the second that he is of age, he's back. I can see the way that you're, you're framing it, whereas both historically and if we were trying to apply this across the many different novels that we have, we see people who are technically not of age, even in their own societies, accomplishing great things. And one of the um, kind of inconsistencies, and something I, I hadn't mentioned quite yet, is that many people viewed the uh, the last will and testament of his father that was presented immediately after his death by his mother to be a very oddly timed ordeal it's something that hadn't been seen uh, by others in the court and all of a sudden the wife shows up and says hey right before he died he wrote this down and said i should be ruler until his son and the only way she can make it sound legitimate is if she says until my son reaches age whereas i think there was probably enough questioning especially uh when you tie it with how she was running the country that in a fairly stereotypical story, especially one with ancient Greco-Roman basis, you wouldn't see, you know, a, a person's young age being a barrier to them accomplishing great things. Well, I think there's a double-edged sword to that, which is that, yes, right, the, the myth that Rome and basically everyone still to this day holds up so highly is Alexander being such a great general that he conquered right conquered a third of the world by the time he was 18 20 whatever age they right people like to mark his different accomplishments by counter arguments 
There are a lot of region. There's a lot of historical precedent for regencies, and although I don't have the statistics in front of me, I'm also pretty sure there's plenty of precedent for people not living long enough to take the throne after they get a regent in, in ruling for them. Um, okay, so going on to the mentor here, I think that this is again one of the better points. Um, the doctor, per, doctor in big quotes here, providing an elixir <laughs> is fine it, he does give some good advice if if your goal is solely to step out of the shadow of rome and you have no moral scruples then his advice of the knight of vespers is good for that goal i'm trying to really hedge this if you can't tell he uses a combination of uh endorsing piracy uh and um he hires a um, he hires a Greek hoplite army, essentially using the money from his endorsed piracy, and then uh, continues it bankrolling with the plunder from the people that he attacks. Regardless, I don't think you've presented right in the belly of the whale. When Alex says reaffirmation, we're kind of looking for the two key things, right? Uh, a real true final separation and that willingness to change to better suit your quest as the reaffirmation, not just a, well, fuck me. We're out of money. I thought everything was going to be easy pickings from here. He certainly showcases how he's changing from being the kid who was playing in the wilderness, essentially playing at being a, a wild man. Uh, to someone who's come fully into their power as a king, he says with a slight uplift in his tone, reaching. Yeah, but it's not a bad reach, right? I guess it's coming. No, no, it, it is a bad reach. It, it is a bad reach, Jack, because Mithridates states when he's talking to his son about his time in the wilderness <laughs> that he was acting as a king. He went, he didn't live in the wilderness and hunt and live as a wild man. He, he went around to different liege lords and made them give him food. He presented himself as a king for the whole time he was exiled. And that's going to bring us to a close on our departure with just the belly of the whale missing. Uh, because unlike several other kings in exile, Mithridates never stops to sing his song at any point I was about, about how much he wished he was king. I was going to make a Lion King joke about how he was in the wilderness all the time. <laughs> uh, Mithridates is no Simba, and therefore there is no belly of the whale in his homecoming. Coming in on my diamond-dusted stallion, uh, we approach our road of trials and our initiation. So for our road of trials here, they're actually fairly well laid out for, for us historically and in the narration of uh, the story, uh, because there are three Mithridantic wars that Mithridates has with Rome. Uh, wars, wars one, two, and three. Yeah, and uh, in each one, he learns a couple different things. And the first one, he is probably at the height of his general appeal to the Asiatic and, and Greek countries. He's being kind of treated as the anti-Rome, the savior of the people under their oppressive thumb. And he's, I mean, he literally has people from far and wide sending emissaries to ally with him. And he learns that while this is all well and good, 
it doesn't hold up well without significant um, military victories in force against the Roman legionaries. And that's where he falls short uh, in the in a battle against uh, Sulla of Rome, one of the, the famous political figures from Roman history, who comes and defeats him, uh, but then signs a treaty with him that allows Mithridates to keep his uh, home kingdom of Pontus, uh, his ancestral holdings as their, as their name, um, but he has to give back all the lands that he's conquered, essentially, and, uh, and allows him to keep a military force, which is something that um, most defeated uh, generals and kings wouldn't be allowed. But Sulla um, is the one who signs that treaty. Unfortunately, that treaty is never ratified by the Senate. So it is used as a uh, leverage point, essentially, that ends up causing the second Mithridatic War. Um, so he learns that the power of the Roman legionaries, essentially, uh, and he also learns a little bit about himself. He was dealing with a lot of opulence in his life, something that he hadn't really showcased up to this point. He had so much wealth from the different places he'd conquered. He was uh, living quite a lavish lifestyle, and he purposely removes that from his life uh, after his defeat here in the first war uh, to focus more on his goals. So in the second war, uh, he's gone about and he's created his own legionary out of essentially Roman exiles. And he's using this as a, a tool, something that he uses to great effect. But what should be the thing he learns, Alex? What does he learn from the second one? He wins the second one, right? Yeah, I mean, wins. What does he learn? He definitely something change uh he learns the power of being uh flexible in your military military tactics yeah it's just flexibility in general is fine yeah because he is pretty flexible for that one all right uh, and in the second war he learns the value of flexibility he kept very much to rigid ideals in the in the first war about um being a, a exactly. mixture of use adaptation or something. Do I keep using the same word? No, no. You said flexibility. I think like adaptation is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Being adaptive. Yeah. All right. So what he really learns in the second war that is ultimately successful for him is how to be adaptable, you know, being extremely adaptive to the situations as they arrive and, and, not being as rigid in his viewpoints on militaristic theory and how the way that Alexander did it with the Hoplites was the way that he was going to rekindle a passion for a Hellenistic empire with himself as the figurehead by adapting the key abilities of the Roman legionaries to his own model. He's able to learn from his enemies in a way that really showcases a great leader. And then for the third war, uh, we essentially see the cost of hubris, and, and Mithridates does as well. Uh, he had built up this thing that he thought was uh, everlasting and, and impenetrable, but uh, eventually falls to the combined might of Rome in a way that uh, that humbles Mithridates while still he still has that spark of hope in him, but it really cripples the man as a whole. Um, especially as he's, he's essentially an ancient man uh, for the purposes of, of this uh, time period. If we move into our meeting with the higher power, I think 
Mithridates is showcased here as a larger-than-life character, one who um, has numerous victories. And I think Sulla does a good job in this book as representing the higher power because this is difficult because he decides to create these own legions, right? And therefore mimic what Rome is doing, but he also hates Rome with such an extreme passion. Um, so I think the atonement is studying Rome, learning what makes them great, learning what makes them this militaristic power and trying to steal enough of it that he can emulate that power. Um, now Rome as a kind of entity is a little vague, but I think it does a really good job of highlighting the struggle that he as an individual has against this greater ideal. Uh, for the apotheosis, we have uh, the civil war in Rome that is taking place on several different instances, and he uses that as uh, opportunity in several instances in his life. Um, the turmoil that comes with a republic that Rome has and the different political factions allows someone who has uh, complete authority in their own realm opportunity to defy Rome, and he uses that on several occasions to his advantage. Um, Finally, we have his ultimate boon. Uh, he, because of his numerous victories against the Roman Republic, his and and the allies that he's gained along the way, and the and the kingdoms that he's conquered, Mithridates secures his place in history and becomes immortalized, like his forebears, Alexander the Great, um, and those who come after him, um, like Caesar, for example. Uh, you know, he becomes such a household name both in his own time and also amongst history that uh, he has successfully removed himself from the shadow of Rome, even though he's in a struggle with it. And that's what he becomes famous for. He uh, he successfully cemented his place in history, which I think is a, is a really good ultimate boon. For example, if he hadn't achieved it, no one would really remember or care about the kingdom of Pontus or, or what he, you know, what that dot on the map meant at this period of time. And so I think it also adds that legacy to his people as well. I think that uh, the road of trials you've highlighted is good for two points and then bad for the third. So for the first point, our, our heroes often fail on the road of trials. I think that the first victory, um, the first trial where Mithridates fails is, is fine. That, teaches him the lesson he needs he needs to adapt and change to get real real victory and renown and he uses that very well in the second trial um, where he adapts to the situation he uses the roman legion like he highlighted he learned from his experience and defeats rome um, through through several different circumstances he loses what he gained in that second trial Right. And then in the third trial that you're trying to highlight, he doesn't learn. He doesn't change anymore. He loses what he he gained and he loses that war because he thought that he was invincible. So the, the third trial here is really the one that I want to dig onto. Learning the cost of hubris isn't. Isn't something you should get from a trial he should have gotten that from the first trial where he thought he, he could have defeated Rome just using the old Greek method. So really, I don't think he has a third trial or can be said to have a good road of trials because he doesn't fully learn the lessons. 
Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from. I think if you were to break down his trial into unique events that happened throughout the war, he would have a more full road. But I think we run the risk of really getting bogged down in the details of, and, and then also, I know we're analyzing the book and not necessarily the historical figure, but then we'd also end up in a discussion, I think, of what was accurate versus inaccurate. And so that's why I was trying to use the three wars more as a uh, template for the trials. I disagree that the hubris isn't a good lesson for the third time because it's not something that necessarily needed to come from the first trial. I do agree that the amount of time and his ability to act from what was learned is extremely diminished after the third trial. He doesn't really get a chance to showcase that he's actually learned his lesson from that trial. Yeah, I, I, I think the point still stands. But let's go on to your higher power. Again, this is something that I don't think fits very well or at all, honestly. Sala is giving Mithridates a gift when he defeats him. He is taking away his power. He's taking away the land. The, the only thing that I could see as a gift is Sala dying, but even that isn't really a gift. Like you said, it haunts Mithridates, and also it invalidates the treaty that he signed, allowing Rome to attack him and his people for a second time. It doesn't fit well, in if, my mind if, at all. I'm going to cut you short there just a hair because the fact that the treaty was invalidated leads to the second war that he succeeds. And... Y yes, but it also... Uh... I mean, and it also teaches him the lesson that we said was a very good lesson and that prepares him for that second war. The way I can Yeah, see, but that's part of your road of trials, not necessarily. Fair, but let's power. let's let's ignore Sulla as an entity for a second. If we were just to say some other person came and, you know, who wasn't as good of a military tactician and Mithridates beats them in that first confrontation in the first war, right? And he continues his march westward towards Rome to defeat them. At some point He's gonna he's gonna get his butt kicked because I mean, the amount of resource Scipio Africanus free and alive Fair. at this time. It's not the point, Jeff. Well, no, you were the one that decided to go into the hypothetical, and I want you to address the fact that if he'd gotten far enough in, Rome would have collapsed because that is historically what basically happened at the time anyone got close to Rome. Rome fucking panicked. It's only I because think, of the fantastic in my, general. In my hypothetical, he would have gotten his butt kicked, and it would have been it wouldn't have been salvageable. There wouldn't be wars two and three. Which because console he, day was it to lead, Zach? Rome. <laughs> Tuesdays was Nero's turn. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think we're all kind of in agreement here that Sala did not fulfill the higher power role. So let's go on to something where I think you did highlight a good point in the Temptress. The Temptress to be a figurehead when offered that opportunity by Sala is a tempting thing. Mithridates could sit back on his laurels, take power um, over the people of Pontus and enjoy the support of Rome and the security that Rome would provide him. 
but that wouldn't make him a memorable figure. Many leaders in the history of Rome took that and were eventually absorbed by Rome and were eventually not remembered in history. So I think that this is a really good temptress you've highlighted. It, could, could you talk a little bit about why you think Mithridates rejects this temptress? Yeah, I think it, it plays into two factors. One, he blames some of his own personal indulgences, eh, indulgences that he, he partook in during the predating and during the first war that came with the power that was given to him. And so personally, he is he sees that as a failing uh, shortcoming on his own part and wants to remove himself from that. And I think becoming a puppet for Rome definitely plays into that aspect that he's so staunchly against right now. Um, and then I, I also think it's just he is and we see it in a conversation that he has both with his son um, about one of his generals that uh, defects to Rome. Uh, and lives out his uh, retirement on a, a, a villa provided by Sulla himself. Uh, he talks about that with such venom in his voice and in, in, in his speech because he finds the whole idea distasteful. He finds what Rome is to be a monster-like entity that um, he could not possibly ally with in any significant way. And so because of that, he just can't accept that, even though there's been, you know, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of rulers across Romans history that have done just that. No, I think you're exactly right. He, he cannot rest on the laurels. He has to strive further. So, yeah, I think this is a perfect temptress. Moving on to the atonement with the creator. It, 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 I think it's a stretch to say that Rome is uh, the creator uh, as typically we want to highlight a single person, but that's really the only argument I have against this point. Um, so I think I'm happy just stepping past that because, right, even in the principle of how we, especially nowadays, right, we talk about Rome as if it was this, right, monolithic monster. We talk about him escaping the shadow of Rome. Rome... Rome as a concept clearly haunts yeah. Mithridates throughout this story. So I'm fine with accepting it. Yeah, Jack, I think you're exactly right. And I, I'm not really going to argue the point either, because I think Mithridates views Rome as its own entity and as the creator of himself as his antithesis. He struggles against it constantly. And, and what's neat yeah. is he even on occasion is able to separate Romans from Rome. Like when he hires all the ex, uh, yeah, with uh, Marius especially, yeah, the the leader of the legions. Well, eventual leader of the legions. He's he's uh, just an officer at first, but you're you're right. He he uses Rome as both like the sounding board for his uh, for his strength, and also to take ideas from. They're a creator in many sense senses as. He wouldn't have his military successes without copying their military style. Yeah, um, your apotheosis, though, I think is a little weak. The, the biggest moment of civil war in Rome is one that Mithridates can't capitalize on. 
he he does use the political strife to his advantage in the road of trials exactly right exactly like you said but in in this instance where he's been defeated after the third war rome is in a civil war again it's it's strife all over this is pompey and caesar fighting a very famous civil war and he can't seize the opportunity so the the realization is there but there's nothing he can do about it i don't like it for that reason he only can't do anything about it because his son's a bitch his son is correct <laughs> i mean that is not what that is that does not change his bitch status. That only changes whether or not he is accurate. Is yeah. is that like precision, uh, precision yeah, accuracy, accuracy, bitch status? <laughs> bitch status is is uh, completely unrelated to actual information. All right. <laughs> so, going on to the ultimate boon, I think that this is another point where uh, he gets close. Mithridates gets very close, but uh, do, do you have a copy of the book with you by chance, Zach? Uh, no. Well, no. You, you actually, I'd like I'd like yeah, I'd like we'll you to restate the journey for us here, Zach, uh, word for word as you wrote wrote it down. What is what is Mithridates attempting to accomplish? To immortalize himself in history. What as exactly as you wrote it and said at the beginning of this podcast. To bring himself and his people out from the shadow of Rome. All right, I'm, I'm just going to read the subtitle because I do have a copy of the book with me. Rome's greatest enemy. The, the first word here is the most important word in the subtitle. Rome's. Mithridates so, comes close, but still in the shadow, even in the subtitle of his own book. Well, let me let me provide a counter uh, position. Would you say that Hannibal uh, did not bring himself out from the shadow of Rome? Hannibal Correct. did bring Hannibal. Himself. No, Hannibal is still entirely defined by the Carthage. Fact. As a society, as an ancient civilization, is, is exclusively defined is exclusively defined in modern context by the Punic Wars with Rome. I don't really know what you want me to say, guys. See, we're obviously <laughs> reading the story because he was Rome's biggest bad guy. But I will, you know, I will state, okay, well, first, I will state that there were dozens of people who made different decisions than Mithridates. And therefore, don't even have a correlation historical note to Rome. They just, they just didn't matter. And on that note, that's going to bring us to a close on the initiation, which is this might be the spottiest initiation we've ever had with uh, both the or uh, the meeting with the higher power, apotheosis, and with our rarity, the ultimate boon missing. Uh, which I, don't, I think it's kind of fascinating. Uh, normally we don't tend to focus on heroes that don't accomplish their goals because it's dissatisfying. But to all of our hardcore Mithridates fans, you can reach out to us at a hero's journey pod on facebook.com or at a underscore heroes underscore journey on Twitter. And let us know, did you feel satisfied with how the story of Mithridates well, it doesn't conclude, but goes. 
taking the sip of hemlock that is our return. Take it away, Zach. So our, uh, our refusal of the return here um, is that even though he has essentially fallen from prominence as a political and militaristic rival of the Romans, he is continuing to build back to his golden age. He continues to try to fight the Romans, come up with new plans, build his, um, build his people and himself back up to their heights. Uh, but he just, A, doesn't have the youth left in him to do it. We, we, we talk about what an imposing figure and how charismatic and everything he has going for him for a majority of his life. But he's suffered uh, you know, one relatively strong defeat and one extremely crushing defeat. Um, and that has really pulled him away from being a prominent player on the world stage. And he just doesn't have the ability to get back to his former glory. And so... Um, while he really wants to get there, he can't. Um, for our magical flight, eventually the palace is being uh, besieged and it's, it's necessary for him to flee. Um, it's not the unconsciousness that we, we so like to see, but it's certainly a fleeing from the place of danger um, through a way that's, uh, you know, ill-defined at best. For the rescue from without, he gets usurped by his son, his son, his bastard, not even his main son, his bastard son, um, who uh, is actually the narrator of the book. And uh, it's definitely a betrayal in the eyes of our hero. But from a, the son's point of view, it's it's for the betterment of both his father and uh, their kingdom. So you can see why it makes sense for the son to do so. And it is certainly a rescuing from a self-defeat where if, um, if Mithridates had been able to continue on the path of revenge that he so uh, obviously desired, it would have caused the complete devastation of their people. And so the son is trying to, to rescue him from himself. Um, so the crossing of the return threshold, the best thing I've really got here was his death. Um, you know, he's, through his own death, he's able to escape his failings, uh, which is rough, admittedly. Um, but what I think it does is it prevents further embarrassment or tarnishing of his legacy. Uh, so much so that um, on the day that he died, uh, Rome held a massive celebration. I mean, it was this is just historical fact. They they celebrated as if ten thousand enemies of Rome had died, uh, which kind of showcased what, how much of a big deal he was to them. Uh, and then, you know, they were supposed to get his body, but, uh, and some rightly assumed probably to be desecrated as a barbarian, but uh, instead they sent his, uh, his lookalike twin, uh, his friend of, of his lifelong friend in his place, uh, such that Mithridates would never have actually been taken by the Romans himself. And as such, he, he achieves that freedom to live as that uh, unsullied legacy uh, as the, the great enemy of Rome. So, Zach, if we're going to uh, argue this in good faith, which I think we should, we're going to have to assume that for the, for the purposes of argument, 
the ultimate boon was achieved and Mithridates was immortalized in history. Otherwise, we're, we miss a lot of the points just on technicality. So with, with that note, um, let's go on. I think that the refusal of the return that you've highlighted is good. Mithridates already immortalized himself in history. He is an old man at this point in time, exactly like you highlighted. So to continue to try and fight Rome doesn't further his notoriety. It would, in fact, if he lost again, probably weaken his position as if Rome defeated him for a third time, would he be as remembered in history as he is now? Would he be seen as this fearsome enemy if he was defeated for a third time by Rome? And we see that even his generals and his highly devoted son think that he would be. So I think this is a really good point. So you don't think he should take elephants to the mountains? No, I don't think it would work. Um, evidence, third Punic Wars. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Conquered most of Iberia. Yeah, but who wants Iberia? They only have sausage. Hannibal and Hamilcar did good jobs. Anyway. <laughs> um, for your next point, fleeing from the palace, mm, there's not really anything magical about it. He's just like taken out. Does he even really flee? Is he more like guided under guard to a different place? Mm, yes, no, kind of both. Like, I don't know. I have a hard time seeing it, anything from that one. I mean, there's no magic in the book, so he can't technically have a magical flight. Yeah, but like he could be spirited away by his advisors trying to rescue him rather than, you know. Rather than the guards carrying him away uh, under into prison, essentially, as his son ordered. Yeah, yeah that's, Zach. That's, that's a type of being spirited away. <laughs> no, that's just how coups work. Uh, yeah, so for um, the rescue from without. So actually, I think that this is a better point in the book than historical fact. In historical fact, his son did absorb him simply to take power because... That, that's what that's what people do. Usurping sons do, yes. But in the book, this is actually presented the way that Zach is intending it to be presented, as a rescue from without. The son is saving his father from making this mistake and continuing on trying to fight the Romans in, in, in a weakened state without support from everyone around him and without the support of his closest advisors, including the son who worships him like a god. So I actually really like this point. As funny as it sounds to say someone is rescued by being usurped, I, I enjoy it. Saving him from himself. Like a Tis a mercy, my lord. Tis a mercy. Good Dr. Philip. All right. And now I think that that was the last point that I'm going to be generous on i don't think he hits any of these other points you okay that is wrong you're telling me that his death does not provide him a freedom to live especially not as we've redefined it zach yeah exactly <laughs> um and even going further you're, you're crossing the threshold death no I, do i need to argue that one 
I'm a really... Campbell purist. Thank you very much. What was your What was even your Master of Two Worlds here? Uh, the Master of Two Worlds was that. Uh, I don't think I even had one. I, he's not really a Master of Two Worlds. Master of Two Worlds would show him being Alexander the Great 2.0, Electric Boogaloo, and Rome not being remembered anymore. So for the for the last point, freedom to live. Um, if we don't even go by our strict definition of living he's dead we've we've had this happen before that that's okay freedom to live though we usually define as living without the influence of other people and i want to just reference back to why the ultimate boon isn't there he's rome's greatest enemy he's defined by his enemy there's so much influence of rome in the book throughout history, even in our discussion of him as trying to define the freedom to live that I I can't in good faith allow it. Let me ask you something, Zach. If Mithridates knew that you were arguing that his freedom to live was granted to him by the Romans not destroying his body, do you think he'd spit on you? Uh, He'd probably do worse than that. And... Unsurprisingly, even with our concession that the ultimate boon is not a prerequisite for a return, uh, we still only hit the two points, the refusal to return and the rescue from without, uh, leaving us with a total final score of 9 out of 17, tragically leaving Mithridates not a hero. And that's going to finish us up here on... Our, the Last King, our second foray into more historical related fiction and our first true foray into the genre. Zach, as the person that probably loves this book more than us because you've read it before, why don't you start us off? So I'm glad that we did it. And I think we could benefit from, you know, one out of 10, one of every dozen being a historical fiction. I, I read quite a bit of historical fiction because I think it, it gives you a nice basis while still allowing for creative possibilities from the author. Um, I read this story. I read it. This is my third reading. I read it first in middle school and again in early college, I think. It's, a, I think, a very good story, and I, I encourage our readers to listen to it if you haven't. Um, I understand why it struggles to fulfill parts of our hero's journey because the author is also trying to adhere to the historical accuracies of the tale. And, you know, one of the reasons that Campbell writes about the hero's journey and created it was to discuss, diagnose, frame the stories that humans write about things that are bigger than themselves. And so grounding this in the realism of true history and of true people, I think doesn't allow the author to to put it as much into a journey as we'd like. But I think it's good to have things that fall short of, um, of 12s and 11s uh, on our tail because that tells us that you can enjoy a story without it necessarily uh, adhering as well to the, to the Campbell's monomyth. Yeah, I I have to agree with you on that point. Historical fiction and us branching out in general, it's not always fruitful, but it's fun to see how 
things stack up against Campbell's monomyth when they're not necessarily the stories we associate with the hero's journey. For me, uh, if it hasn't come across already, uh, I'm a big fan of Rome and a backseat historian lover of the Punic Wars. So I came into this book predisposed to think that it was going to lie to me. But I think Ford does a really good job in his prose and his description. And they can drag on a little bit, but even his intro is this gripping description of these this Persian army that's a conglomerate of all these different nations where he goes a little bit into depth to give them each their own flavor and then slams into us with the badasses of Rome showing up casually in with the junior senator presenting him a letter and walking away with, without a formal response, which may have just appealed to me greatly because it makes Rome even more badass. Oh, Alex, how did uh, how this book treat you in the end? Yeah, so I like historical fiction. I don't think I'm as big a fan as Zach is, but it's very enjoyable for me uh, to learn a little bit about history. Um, and I think Ford did a pretty good job. There are a couple things that he embellished. I think we tried to highlight them. Like uh, Mithridates didn't actually live in the in the wilderness for seven years, and his son usurped him to usurp him, but. It's mostly historically accurate, and there this is a fun way to learn about history. Um, I do think that the writing was. I do think that the writing was good. There are some um, just little little tropes that I didn't enjoy overall. Um, the description of Mithridates as this imposing figure was repeated again and again and again, and and and. I, at the end of this, but I was do like, you, Alex? I get it. He looks like a Greek god. He's he's big. It did. It did have a point though in allowing uh, the reader to pick out that Bintis had replaced Mithridates in in the um, when he was given to Rome, when the body was given to Rome for burial or as proof that Mithridates was dead. So it. All of the writing, even though it wasn't my favorite thing, did did serve a point. That's going to wrap us up on The Last King, Rome's Greatest Enemy. Uh, as always, I have been your host and judge, Jack. This is Alex. And I'm Zach. And join us next week as we dive Little. back into the world of Harry Potter with the Chamber of Secrets. Yay! Oh, thank you. So let us start our journey where we always start. In the departure, where you recognize that Hannibal is more well-known than you, and you mean nothing. Damn, that's some shame. <clears throat> uh, join us next week as we discuss the true greatest enemy of Rome, Hannibal, and his 17 out of 17 journey called Being a Badass. You mean losing? The losing story of a loser? And join us the week after that as Alex talks to us about Scipio Africanus. The actual, loser 